And welcome back to the Mystery Record Club. I'm Dan Cooper, and somewhere out there is my co-host, Sam Whaley. How are you doing, dude? I'm okay, thank you. How about you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I've been working from home today, so it's been quite a chilled out day. You know, that kind of thing. Nice weather, so I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, I've been out suit shopping today. I've got a couple of weddings to finish the year off, and unfortunately, I've grown out of my last suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's that spread. It starts to creep yeah. up on you. I mean, I got plenty of years use out of the last suit, so... Hopefully I'll get plenty more use out of this one. I tend to go years without actually buying suits, so I think I think it's an accomplishment. It's, it's one of those things for guys, isn't it? We try and go as long as possible to, yeah. to kind of, you know, put off that inevitable shop and then... Um, it's just not often that you get to wear them, is it? No, not really. It's not an everyday honest, thing unless you're like some sort of businessman or whatever. Yeah, that, that's true. And I look at those guys and I think, well, you know, maybe I'd like to live a life. But um, yeah, I don't I don't fancy wandering around in suits all day. Those ties, man, they, they start to get up on my neck a bit i don't like it yeah as a matter of fact the uh, the last wedding we went to um mine and beth's dad we um we we had me and beth's dad's should i say we had like a, a kind of agreement that we were just going to take the ties off you know we were just gonna us two walk in without ties on and see what happened um <laughs> and it went down fine so maybe we should just do that at every wedding yeah maybe you should <laughs> I, I think you're okay. i think once the actual ceremony's over you can just do whatever the hell you want can't you Definitely, definitely. And you say you've got two weddings to, to finish the year and you've got one right at the start in February, my friend, um, uh, which will be my, my very own. So, so yeah, hopefully you'll be able to put that suit to use. And uh, and, and why not? So you, you said it was powder blue to me earlier on, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. That's a slick colour, man. That's slick, very modern. Well, I really wanted to get a purple suit and I really wanted to have a green shirt with a purple tie as well. But unfortunately, me, my wife wouldn't let me do that. She uh, maybe she was thinking that you'd look a little bit like Beetlejuice or something because green and purple. You I was know? thinking more of the Joker, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's probably what I'm thinking. To be yeah. Okay, Beetlejuice well, wears that... the black and white stripes. This is true. This is true. I should know. I love that movie, but yes, um, the Joker look would be awesome, dude. Unfortunately, we can't we can't go out in public looking like that with no, our no, uh, no. partners. I tell you what, they... through through the years, I have definitely changed as a man because I think probably. 10 years ago you i wouldn't have been seen dead in a powder blue suit yep uh it was strictly black 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 for me and things have changed that's the thing isn't it i think i think the older you get the 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 more you care but the kind of less you care at the same time mm. you become really comfortable with yourself and you're like well if someone doesn't like me wearing that i don't really care you know yeah. whatever so yeah. i think i'll probably be going with some kind of um weird check but we'll see how it goes oh yeah for, for the old wedding i'm not sure you see every, you see people online you think i'd look good in that but you get in the shop and it's another story so was, <laughs> we'll see i um i went into uh top man at first other oh, yeah? men's clothing places are available mm. um unfortunately that was a little bit too expensive for me but as yeah. i was looking around the uh suits they didn't have anything that didn't have the word super skinny written on it and that, oh dude i just don't it's understand scary, that. isn't it <laughs> yeah. i mean i like i kind of like the tight this is we're going into suit specifics here so this might as well be a different podcast but the tight legs i like but the tight top oh not for me man i can't pull no, that off anymore it's, it's it does str- not there's, work there's so many different kinds that i was looking at today i mean obviously you've got the old school like regular and uh tailored fits that's all i thought there was but now you've yep. got skinny super skinny you've got slim and you've also got muscle 
fit, whatever that Why is. Why is everyone losing weight and I'm putting it on? What <laughs> is going on? It's crazy. The super skinny, I'll, I'll never get into that stuff. I have no, no idea who that's aimed at because I don't ever see anyone on the street that is that ridiculously skinny that could fit into those goddamn a super things. skinny suit, yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. I remember once... Um, I bought some skinny white jeans when I was about 25, oh, yeah. and my uh, my housemate wouldn't let me wear them because she said it made me look like Axl Rose, <laughs> but not Axl Rose back in the day, Axl Rose now. <laughs> so, yeah, um, no, they got chucked in the bin. Excellent. So, yes, yes. Anyway, um, fashion chips, fashion chips, fashion tips for all there. Um, I think we decided uh, last episode we were going to kind of talk about newer music that we were listening to. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's 2019. There's a hell of a lot of good stuff out there. Tell me what you've been listening to recently uh, that's that's new or just generally what you've been listening to. Uh, I think I mentioned this a few weeks back, actually, but I've uh, started back on it again. The album Hail Stan by Periphery. Oh, yeah. And each time I listen to it, it just gets better and better and better and better. These guys are the ultimate in inventive technical metal i think they're absolutely fantastic i think they're really really underrated as well and it's quite strange i was looking through their uh, uh chart positioning and things like that and in the uk uh hailstan reached number 20 in the album charts but over in the us 83 so it's a strange one that is pretty strange um I actually had a chance to listen to that record because you i think you mentioned it on the podcast maybe a month or so ago mm. It's a really fantastic record, and it, like you say, it's it starts off really well. I mean, initially you like it, but it's a it's a grower as well. There's a lot of kind of layered stuff going on there that you don't notice until yeah. a few listens down the line. So I think I'm not quite people... sure how to say it, but the the genre is is it gent or degent, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, we've mentioned this before, haven't we? I think it, that whole genre was started by a band called Meshuggah yeah. back in the day, or influenced by, and um. It, it was like a word that was banded around internet forums, gent, yeah. and it's become an actual genre, which is kind of within the progressive metal spectrum, I guess. Yeah, it was quite... I read uh, quite an interesting quote, um, and it said, Meshuggah started gent and periphery perfected it. Okay. Well, that's that's something to bear in mind then. If people are, uh, are liking the whole Meshuggah thing... I think if they're wanting something new and contemporary, a bit more up to date, seek out this album, Hail Stan. Um, it's not just a funny title. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been listening to some, some interesting stuff recently, some more commercial stuff. I don't know if you're a fan, but I, um, I've been checking out the new album by Lana Del Rey. She's quite a mellow, um, she's quite a mellow, somber person for such a huge star, and I really like that. It reminds me of the whole... Not musically, but it reminds me of Nick Cave in the kind of the fact that she's so ridiculously popular, but she basically is just singing about death mm. and killing people. I mean, I couldn't really pass a new album by because it's called Norman Fucking Rockwell. So I was like, okay, anyone that's got the balls to put a record into the charts with that name um, has, has got to be onto something. And it's a really good record. It's a good listen if you just want to chill out. I fell asleep on the bus listening to it the other day, and that wasn't because it was boring. That's something I'm going to have to check out then because I, I I must have a really wrong impression of Lana Del Rey because for some reason I'm thinking Pop Princess. Well, I would say that on her first album, I mean, she's always had the same lyrical approach. It's always been quite morbid, but on her first album, she was a lot more commercial. Right. She settled into being a really, I don't know. She settled into to something specific to her. She's, she's very downbeat. 
It's very old school kind of fifties orchestral type stuff. Um, but you know, with the, with a modern take, and she's really gotten better um, compared to. I mean, she's been around for a good ten years now, so she she's might well have changed since you've heard her. But yeah, um, she definitely doesn't fall in with the rest of those um, Miley Cyruses and Taylor Swifts. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we've been listening to to a fair bit there. I guess it's it's time to start the show. I think so. If you haven't listened to the Mystery Record Club before, here are the rules. Um, Sam picks a record for me at the end of each episode, and I pick one for him. We then go away, listen to those records, do a bit of research, and then we come back and we talk about them for an hour, two hours, I don't know, however long it takes. Uh, So last week, you picked Morrissey, You Are the Quarry, um, which we'll talk about later. But first, we're going to talk about a punk rock album. Um, not from the 80s, not from the 90s, but a comeback record by a band named The Descendants. So tell us more about that one, Sam. Okay, so the album you picked for me was Hypercathium Spazinate. Now, Hypercathium Spazinate is the seventh studio album by The Descendants. It came out on the 29th of July, 2016, so that is rather modern for one of your picks. Yep. Um, and that was on Epitaph Records. It was the band's first album since Cool to be you in 2004 obviously making that comeback which is this week's theme um now the highest it this was actually their highest charting album uh, on the billboard 200 with a peak position of number 20 and i think that's pretty incredible considering the band have been active like on and off since 1977 and then you know what what's that like bloody nearly 40 years isn't it 40 years it's 40 years isn't it yeah, man. Um, yeah, it's, and it's, it's taken it's 40 now, years right? to get to that position. So they released the sixth studio album, Cool to Be You, in 2004, like I just said. Uh, and then they took an extended hiatus for the band to have some time off and the singer, Milo Aukerman, to teach biology. In 2010, the band members reunited, obviously, to play live shows, and then they wrote this album. I'll get back onto that. I want to do something a little bit different um, this week. I'm going to do more of a bit of a history on Descendants and their history of comebacks. I think you chose a very fitting band for the comeback episode. The Descendants are the kings of it. Uh, It goes all (laughs) the way back to 1982 when they recorded their very first album, aptly titled Milo Goes to College. Um, Yeah. And as soon as the recording was over, Milo left the band and off to college he went, where he decided to study biochemistry. Um, on the back of the record, it states dedicated to Milo Aukerman from The Descendants. It was signed by the other band members. Now, when talking about this album, Milo said, When I decided to go to university, the guys in the band were pretty hip on it because they knew how big of a nerd I was. Like, what else would you expect him to do but go off and be a geek? I mean, I've got a PhD in biochemistry. How uncool is that? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. That would be something it is. I'd love to do. Um, what are your thoughts on the first breakup and how cool do you think it was of the band to be so accepting of this considering the, you know, like the relative success that they'd had up to this point? You've, uh, you've really done a deep dive here because I, I wasn't aware of this first breakup after, um, after Milo goes to college. I kind of just assumed that they plowed on and whatnot through the eighties, but I, yeah, I did not know this at all. But how cool is it of a band to kind of say, okay, we've made one record, it's 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 pretty successful on the punk scene, um, and and now we're letting our singer go off to college and and do the thing he wants. I mean, they had to be a real tight knit group of friends to be able to kind of say, okay, 
we're going to sacrifice the band for the greater good for uh, for the fact that Milo wants to get his education and and that kind of thing. It's it's fantastic and it's great. You don't often hear a band's been that supportive of each other to the extent where the band actually breaks up. So it's pretty pretty awesome, dude. So at this point, the band actually did carry on without Milo, various different oh. singers. And if I'm getting this right, I haven't got this written down, but I think I remember reading that they actually changed the name to The Ascendants. Really? Uh, which I thought was a really cool thing. I might be wrong, but I'm sure I've read that somewhere. Regardless of whether you're right or wrong, I'm, I'm keeping that as a fact in my brain. Yeah, now, so I'm great. just going to tell a, people and they'll be like, bullshit. And I'll be like, well, Sam said. It's a factoid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the drummer, Bill Stevenson, had a big, big choice to make um, because he was offered a spot to join the mighty Black Flag. He originally intended to do both, but the touring schedule with Black Flag, he had no chance at all. Uh, and me and you both understand how busy it can be just being in one band, let alone two. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, bit of a weird question for you, but put yourself in Bill's situation. Which band would you have chosen, Black Flag or Descendants, and why? Well, see, I think that's a really easy one for me. I love Black Flag. I love the early hardcore days. I love the stuff where they go into the kind of the more metal-y hardcore. It's all great. And I mean, who doesn't love Henry Rollins? Me and you talk about that guy all the time. Absolute legend. But I would have to pick The Descendants because without The Descendants, there would have been a lack of my favorite bands. So no Blink-182, no Green Day, none of those kind of pop-punk luminaries from the from the noughties, from the 90s even. So I think I would have picked The Descendants. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. Um, I don't know whether you've seen any of the uh, the old Blink-182 Urethra Chronicle uh, DVDs or I documentaries. Uh, and they go on to talk a lot about The Descendants being their main influence. Yeah, yeah, they talk about like the Descendants and Dag Nasty, all that kind of thing, don't they? And it's, it's quite eye-opening. Yeah, because yeah, it sends you down like a real path of all these different bands that you yeah. think, hang on, blink like those guys. <laughs> yeah, it's quite funny actually because when I, obviously, uh, when I was a, a lot younger and I watched the Urethra Chronicles, um, I'd, I hadn't heard of Descendants, I hadn't heard of Propaganda or any, any bands like that. Yeah. Um, not really anything that was big in the UK, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but going on to listen to them, I couldn't believe how much, uh, like how modern they sounded for a band in the eighties. It's it's a weird thing to listen to. It's um, crazy, isn't it? The, the the production on some of those records. I mean, yeah, granted, some of the songs on some Descendants records are kind of like comedy songs. Yeah, but the great songs, the the really great sounding songs. Yeah. They really nailed the production, like you say, for the 80s, for a punk rock band yeah. that really didn't have much of a budget. Of course, with Bill Stevenson leaving to Black Flag, this meant the Descendants or the Ascendants were no more. Um, and this was for the first time. I think by the end of this review, we'll all be able to say that Descendants truly are the Terry Funk of punk bands. Hey, Terry Funk! Wrestling reference! Yeah, little wrestling likeness there, little wrestling reference for you. Um <laughs> So in 1985, the band got back together. Hooray! Bill Stevenson yeah. left Black Flag and returned home along with Milo. And they released mm. a second album titled I Don't Want to Grow Up. Um, unfortunately for the band, just two years later, Milo left again to pursue a career in biochemistry. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck for the Descendants there. <laughs> yeah, and the Descendants were no more again. But this time it was a much longer hiatus. Ten years to be precise. 
Yeah. Uh, so in 1995, Milo returned once again and the band reformed once again and they began writing, which personally is my favourite Descendants album, Everything Sucks. Oh, yeah. Um, and with it brought the style which got me into the band in the first place. It's the melodic punk rock style that I adore and inspired me to learn guitar as a kid. And it's all the stuff that I, I mentioned to you earlier on that just sounds so much like everything in the very late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, these guys were the first to do it. Uh, another reason why I love this so much is because it's so easy to play. Um, yep. I'm such a bad guitar player that it makes me sound good. I love it. <laughs> um, That's a lie. He's really not that bad a guitar player, but still. Um, so what, what what were your thoughts on Everything Sucks? Uh, I know we've spoken about it a little bit, but how influential was this one on the way that we see pop punk nowadays? Well, here's something, right, that, that I, I probably um, wouldn't have mentioned unless I'd have looked it up. Um, in the interim of the actual Descendants breakup, the band went on and formed a band called All, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And basically, I think they, they solidified like a kind of more melodic punk rock sound. I mean, they were still quite hard, but, you know, it was one of those things where they weren't quite as full-on as the Descendants. Yeah. And I think All had a lot to do with the sound of Everything Sucks. I mean, I think it kind of merged the old-school Descendants sound, the kind of more scrappy sound, with um, yeah. with that catchier element that you mentioned there. Yeah, I mean, don't, I, don't get me wrong, Milo Goes to College is a great album, but oh, yeah. I think the way they evolved into Everything Sucks was just phenomenal. Well, they're, they're almost a different band. If you listen to them on Milo Goes to College, he's got like a really throaty kind of vocal yeah, approach. Right, yeah. It's almost shouty, but he's still singing. Um, you listen to him on the record that we're going to talk about, Hypercafium Spazinate, and even on Cool To Be You, he's singing, as in he's not mm. using his kind of like roary throat voice. He's he, he's singing there. And I think that's got a lot to do with the break they had with, with you know, like obviously Milo got a chance to rest his voice and get out of the punk rock scene. Um, and the fact that the band evolved while he was away into into a tighter unit and kind of, you know, they, they just, they... they um, what happened with all influenced everything sucks because you've got that merging of styles mm. and um yeah i absolutely love it i love the title track i remember the first time i heard it on a compilation i was like who the hell are these guys and that's what sent me backwards in checking out the rest of their catalog so it's a great record yeah, man. definitely it's not that relevant to the review or anything but i just want to name drop a few of the bands that descendants toured with uh during the everything sucks era okay. um so across the globe they toured with the Swinging Utters, the Bouncing Souls, Suicide Machines, uh, Shades Apart, Guttermouth, Less Than Jake, Handsome, Electric Frankenstein, Social Distortion, Pennywise, H2O, and tons, tons more. All bands that I love. So, That's like uh, an A to Z of my 1997 to 1999 years. Yeah, it kind of it's makes crazy, me wish man. I was born 10 years earlier, so this could have yeah, been my, uh, you know, my sort of going to gigs era. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally, man. Um, although, obviously, we've seen less than Jake and Bouncing Souls still going on strong today, of course, and Pennywise. Oh, yeah, um, man, definitely. So, moving swiftly on. After a few more breakups and reformations between 96 and 2008, um, unfortunately, a founding member of the band, Frank Novetta, died after a short illness. Uh, I don't know whether you've looked into this or read anything about it. There's There's not a lot on it. It's such a strange thing. Um, they mention how Frank became ill 
and then possibly just a week or so later died and it was just like that wow and this of course caused the band to break up once more but in 2010 the band reformed for a few gigs but weren't heard of again until 2015 when stevenson announced that the band were back together working on some demo recordings and a year later in 2016 Hypercafium Spazinate was released. Yeah. So now we can talk about it because this is what we're Ooh. really here for. Yes. Okay, so how many times was that? How many times did they break up and get back together? Maybe seven in about 35 years. Really? Holy uh, cow, man. <laughs> wow. What a band. So um, resilient. Do you think the constant breakups and reformations have contributed to the longevity of the band? I really do because, I mean... Um, I think when you're in, you know, when you're on tour in a smelly bus and you're kind of like in each other's pockets all the time, you do that for like 15 years, you're just going to get sick of each other. You'll probably fall out, like friendships will get dissolved and stuff like that. But these guys not only allowed the singer to go away and get an education, which obviously benefited his life, you know, but, you know, they broke up and they did their own things so much that when they came back together, they, they were always a stronger unit. And I personally think every time they go yeah. back together, they released better stuff. Like, Milo Goes to College, it's great, but it's a first record. And then they get back together later on, they re release albums like All, which is a classic. Get back together in the 90s, you get, you know, Everything Sucks, Cool to Be You. And this record, without those uh, those breakup periods, I really don't think the albums would have been as strong. I, I don't even think the guys would like each other as much because, no. you know, it just happens. I was, I, was, uh, I was just about to say, I think me and you discussed this uh, earlier in the week about bands that have been together for such a long time mm. that... There's always sort of a lull yep. uh, in songwriting and the band actually wanting to be together and tour together. Yeah. So I think that sometimes, well, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Oh, yeah. So this time that they spent apart in between albums and in between tours really helps sort of cement their relationship. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so the album contains topics of love and relationships, classic pop pump stuff. Pop pump? Pop pump. Pop punk stuff <laughs> um they talk about getting old they talk about needing to diet and they talk about recovering from illness this makes the album like super relatable for somebody like me uh as i think me me and you both are reaching that kind of age where you're sort of thinking to yourself okay yeah m maybe my knees are hurting a little bit today what, after what work trying or, to say? <laughs> i've got a bit of backache or you know <laughs> i'm not trying to say anything just other than the fact that you're a year older than i me. i agree <laughs> my knees are hurting man <laughs> we all find these things a problem it's a great relatable album in that way the lead track feel this was written by carl alvarez after the passing of his mother uh i think it's a really fantastic opener with a really sweet drum roll to kick in. It's got all the classic Descendants style of power chords, speed drumming, uh, and then obviously you've got that newer melodic uh, sound. You've got the melodic bass playing from Carl Alvarez, which I love in Descendants. Yeah, I love that song. That's great, but I would never have thought it was, uh, it was about that because it's such a kind of like punk rock song, you know? Yeah. Sometimes in punk rock, everything can sound quite happy but have a bit more of a sinister undertone to yeah, it yeah for sure again i'm going to go off topic a little bit with you now but i i read the meaning behind last caress by misfits oh okay is this is this good uh, or bad <laughs> well of course there's some there's some pretty you know uncomfortable lyrics sure. in that song but it's a really great happy song with some quite uncomfortable lyrics yep. 
But yeah, uh, that was just an example for you of uh, something that sounds really happy but has quite a sinister undertone to it. For sure. We'll probably talk about that one another day on another Definitely. pod with the actual meaning for you. Definitely. Of course. Let's have a little listen to Feel This. No Fat Burger, up next. And it's about not being able to eat unhealthy foods without consequences. <laughs> oh, Lord, am I feeling that one yep. right now? Same. I thought to myself last night, shall I go to McDonald's? I better not. Oh. It's that kind of thing. Ten years ago, shall I go to McDonald's? Yeah, why the hell not? Every Tuesday I work from home. Can you imagine what it's like? I mean, at work... I've only got the things I bring with me, but when I work from home on a Tuesday, the world is my oyster, so I can eat yeah. whatever I want, and it's not good. You've really got to pull yourself back on those Tuesdays. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I work right next to a McDonald's, ah, which is bad. Not good. Milo Ackerman called this an update to I Like Food, which I thought was a really great explanation. <laughs> this song is really relatable to somebody like me who, you know, like I've just said, as a child could eat and eat and eat and eat, but now I'm in my mid-30s, I'm having to be more careful, and it's it goes across the board for everybody. I think it's a running theme throughout this whole album. Would you agree that that's the running theme? You know, the theme of this record is adult problems. I think so. I think the descendants have had their fair share. I mean, we talk about them breaking up and getting back together. That's only one of the things. I mean... We, we talk about the kind of the deeper meanings on this record and you mentioned No Fat Burger which when I first heard it obviously it's kind of a, one of the Descendants more comedy songs but it does really run true in the in that kind of um, the, the seam that they're kind of mining here in terms of you know it's about age and it's about they're not the same people they were when they wrote Milo Goes to College not even the same people they were when they wrote Cool to Be You um, obviously mm. Bill Stevenson uh, went through the, his whole brain tumour issue, um, which really set the band back for quite a while. If you haven't actually read about that, go and watch the Descendants documentary. I can't remember the name of it, but it's one of the best films you'll see on a band ever. It charts the band throughout the whole of their career, and you get to see their ups and downs. Obviously, I just mentioned Bill had an illness. And I think, I think the Descendants do a really good job here of appearing to be just a punk rock band, well, it's 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 not really that, is it? It's what you said. This mm. is what's under the surface, um, and yeah, yeah, that's how I feel about this one. Cool. So uh, let's hear a little bit of that song. Okay, so Smile and Comeback Kid are actually about Ackerman's view on the past illnesses of Bill Stevenson, which you've just mentioned. Um, the ironic thing is that, as is often the case, Bill Stevenson has never 
tried recreational drugs. Uh, he never really got into alcohol until later life. But in the last 10 years, he has had some health issues. Like you said, all on the documentary, he grew a brain tumor unknowingly around 2008, which remained for another two years before being removed. The tumor caused him to lose motivation and eventually made him gain weight. He had a blood clot, he had diabetes, he had sleep apnea, and in 2010, he had a successful surgery to remove it, which helped him gain his health back. Yeah, man. And then in 2016, Stevenson actually revealed that he'd had open heart surgery. So yeah, really rough 10 years for Bill there. For sure, man. So of course, I think it was quite fitting that they had some songs about this on the album as well. Mm. I know I'm not talking much about the music on this album, but sometimes it's hard with this style as pretty much the whole album is smacking your face, melodic punk rock from beginning to yeah, end. Yeah, we'll just say this about the record, man. I mean, it is a fantastic punk rock record full of catchy yeah. gems, but we, as, as we're mentioning here, it's one of those records that kind of runs deep on the subjects of the things that went on in these guys' lives during the comebacks, during growing up. You know, it's not a negative thing at all that this is a, a full-on punk rock record. The song Limiter is Ackerman's view on his child needing to take drugs for ADHD. I don't know if you've listened properly to the lyrics of this one, but when you understand that's what the song's about, it's really, really obvious as well. Uh, I really like this song, and I think it's quite cool that the band have touched on this subject because I don't think it's anything I've really heard before songs about ADHD. I don't know. I'm not sure about I that. I think that... Um... In terms of like maybe back in the day, the whole ADHD thing was maybe taken kind of in a more comical way. But um, I think as like a father kind of addressing something that's happening with his son, it's it's again a punk rock song that sounds like a punk rock song that is talking mm. about something that that means something to this guy. Something serious, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah, I guess it's a, I guess ADHD is something that's uh, it's been around forever, but it's not been talked about forever For sure. and. And now it is, yeah, yeah. as with a lot of things uh, in, in modern day. You know, in fact, let, let's have a little listen to that one. final song on the album is beyond the music this one and i really like the meaning behind this one as well it's, this song is about the band being friends outside of music uh and once again i really love the idea of this song and once again it's really relatable especially between me and you as beyond the podcast we are friends to the end hey, what was that i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i really, i uh you know I, I think that's a great thing to write about as well uh and i think I really like that the whole album is sort of written on their own experiences yeah. rather than, you know, stupid stuff or political stuff or, you know, getting a girlfriend or whatever. It's personal, it's, isn't it? It's a personal album. Personal, yeah, that's that's correct, yeah. Um, the reason why I said getting a girlfriend is because that's a really pop-punk thing to write about, I suppose. Yes, it? yes, or losing a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Hypercaffeine Spazinate received positive reviews, Um 
Right in front of Exclaim, Ian Gormley landed, lauded the band's continued relevance. However, the album's title was the cause of much controversy in the UK due to the word spaz. Yep. Um, the music website Real Gone called for a boycott on the album and the charity group Stay Up Late started a campaign to get the album's title changed for the European market. Um, I've not written anything about this, but it sort of reminded me of something that's happened before with Jimmy Eat World. Bleed American? Uh, Bleed American, yeah, which was changed in America to Salt Sweat Sugar. Yep. Uh, but over here in the UK, continued to be Bleed American. I don't think it's any, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to change the name of an album for, you know, things where what are sens- more sensitive in one area than another. Yep. But at the same time as well, who cares? I agree. You know I, mean, what I mean, some there's a right and a wrong time to compromise, isn't there? Really? Yeah. Um, and I think in terms of Jimmy World, 2001, there was a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. They're a sensitive band, so they did, they did what they thought was right. But I don't know about it in this case. Mm. No, I don't know about it either. I don't think there's any offence meant whatsoever. So, yeah, again, who cares? Um, it's definitely like a cultural language barrier between the US and the UK because, as we know, the band are like, far from trying to cause offence. What are your thoughts on the album title? I... um. I actually read into this uh, when when I was picking the record out for you. I came across like a forum. I think it was one of the forums you just uh, mentioned. Was it Real Gone or something like that? Was that was that? Yeah, was Real Gone. Yeah, that's, that's right, the one. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, the, the, it started out with with one of the fellas, like maybe the director of the, of the website or the charity or what, whatever they, those guys do, um, get been very upset about this album title, saying that it, it kind of. It was um, derogatory or demeaning to the spastic society, I guess. So they thought that the album was tying into that. But what a really wonderful thing kind of happened down the line. Um, they got in touch with Bill Stevenson for comments. So uh, they got in touch with the drummer for The Descendants. He wrote back in, in the way that only Bill Stevenson, the nicest guy in punk rock, could do. And he basically addressed the language kind of barriers, as you mentioned, and said, well, it means something completely different in America. This isn't a word that means illness. It doesn't It doesn't relate to an illness where we are. Um, we just called it that because to spaz in it, apparently, is, is, is something that happens when you ingest coffee or you know something that makes you hyper yeah so yeah i can i can totally understand what that word can mean other than the exactly but the fact that he addressed that and these parties both went away really happy just shows you the kind of band the descendants are you know just ready and willing to say look uh we're not the kind of band that meant any offense by this we just thought it was a pretty cool album title and i've got to (laughs) say man i really agree when i saw it i was like that's a great title (laughs) To finish off, I've just got to say the best thing about this record and all the records Descendants have done over the years is that they stay true to themselves. They've never strayed away from the roots. I hate the term sellout as it's used way too much and often wrongly as well, but Descendants are as far away from being sellouts as you could get. Mm. Uh, How many other bands out there can you name who have pretty much done the same thing throughout their whole career of 40 odd years um you know they've had changes in lyrical content of course like you mentioned they've brought in the sort of more melodic sound and milo ackerman's voice vocal style has certainly matured throughout the years but the music has forever remained true 
Would you agree with that statement? I really would. I I think like in essence, you've got like the rawness of Milo Goes to College and that's still really apparent on this album, but you've got like poppier tracks that came along. Some of my favorites like Silly Girl, K-Mage and Clean Sheets from, from like the kind of the mid-career albums. And they're like properly matched on this record by songs like uh, On Paper, which I really like. That's a track that I really like, proper catchy. But then you've got that silliness. I mean... Like No Fat Burger. I mean, I know we said that it kind of has an underlying meaning, but it's still that pure old school hardcore comedy descendants thing. Um, and it's not like they ever use keyboards or anything. Or, you know, it, so I think they're one of those bands that you can definitely say that they're the furthest away from that word sellout because it's not like they ever compromised because they were the king of what happened. They were the king of what they did in the first place. And then they just kept bringing it forward, bringing it forward, influencing more people. And yeah, they, they've they've always capitalized on on like new sounds and just brought it into their sound. So, you know, you're not telling me that at no at any point in their career somebody hasn't come along to them yeah. and said, "Hey, why don't we try and modernize or you know whatever." Yeah, but. luckily they've pretty much always recorded their own records. So I think when it comes down to the crunch, they've probably had a couple of people say, you know. We'll sign you to this uh, contract, but you might have to put some trumpets on there because Scar's really hot. And they were like, uh, we're not that bad, dude. <laughs> so yeah, I get you. And yeah, that's about it, really. That's about all I've got to say. Awesome, dude. We're back and we're going to talk about the record Sam picked for me. So this one is You Are The Quarry, which is the seventh studio album by former Smiths frontman Morrissey. It was released through Sanctuary Records and Attack Records in spring 2004. And it was produced by Jerry Finn and also recorded in England and California. So Stephen Morrissey, son of Elizabeth and Peter, more widely known as the former frontman of legendary Manchester band The Smiths, Sam, is he a misunderstood poet or is he an overhyped motormouth? What do you reckon? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, but I think more so he's definitely a misunderstood poet Yeah. in the eyes of many who don't quite understand him. For sure, man. For sure. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Sorry, well, it made yeah. sense to me. Um, personally, I think it's a bit of both as well, but we'll be talking about his poetic musical side a bit later on. But first, let's start off with a bit of fun. We're going to read a couple of his most potent and divisive quotes. And I want to say first and foremost, these are not the views of Mystery <laughs> Record Club podcast. So Other views are available. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the views are available. Um, so here's something mild. Um, he said, long hair is an unpardonable offense which should be punishable by death. Um, which is which is an interesting one, I think. Probably talking about a lot of the bands in the 80s. Um, when he left the stage at Coachella, he said, the smell of burning flesh is making me sick. I can smell burning flesh, and I hope to God it's human. <laughs> yeah, yeah, classic, right? And uh, the, the last one, which I really like, he, he said um, this about Michael Bublé. He, he said he was famous and meaningless, which <laughs> which is pretty cutting, you know, to sum up one man's career, but who's better at it than Morrissey? So, um, 
He started his mainstream career as the frontman for 80s rock band The Smiths, um, and he enjoyed much critical acclaim and infamy with albums such as The Queen Is Dead and hits such as This Charming Man, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and Girlfriend in a Coma. Now, I love The Smiths. I've got fond memories of uh, laughing to to the lyrics of Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others. Uh, My dad played that in the back of his car on a trip to the seaside once. I just remember me and my girlfriend at the time just laughing, thinking, what the hell is this guy singing about? Some girls are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger than other girls' mothers. (laughs) But the more you listen to The Smiths, the more you kind of get what's going on there with him. You know, I loved his lyrics. I loved the whole deadpan. It's really of... observational, isn't it? <clears throat> I think it's so. It's definitely an observational thing. It's, it's a guy who observes everything and just doesn't really give a crap about saying his opinions on it. It almost sounds like a, like a stream of consciousness song. Like he's not really thinking about the lyrics. He's just looking out of his window and going, yeah. well, Johnny's written a pretty cool guitar part. And uh, what would go well with that? But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, in the first instance, I love Morris's lyrics and, and I love his melodies and stuff, but it was always Johnny Marr's kind of guitars and mm. the guitar playing. That, it's so melodic and slow, like, so lush that that stood jingle, out to me. Jingle, jangle, jingle. It is. It's just it's jangly and wonderful and it just it, it really sets the scene. So the fact that I was so interested in that, it always kind of took me away from, you know, Morris's solo career. I never really looked into that because I thought, without Johnny Marr, you know, this isn't going to be the same thing. Uh, so, you know, I guess I kind of lost out there. But onto the album at hand, You Are The Quarry, in many ways, is a comeback album, with Morrissey's previous record being seven years earlier, with Maladjusted in 1997. Now, it's not surprising that this is a completely different take on the Morrissey sound, really. It was that seven-year gap, um, and he released six albums all in one go. Then he had this break and came back. So, obviously, a lot of things in music had changed when he came back. And as as a huge fan of music himself, we know that from listening to films, listening to um, interviews with the man, he takes a lot of the musical scenes in around him and he obviously embraced a lot of the sounds that were going on during that hiatus. So what I want to ask you, Sam, as a bit of a stranger to Morrissey's solo uh, career, how does You Are The Quarry compare to his previous solo works? Um, I think his work has, has naturally evolved from the stuff he did with the Smiths. Um the first album, the first solo album, Viva Hate, contur- contains the song Every Day is Like Sunday, uh, oh, yeah. which is very, very Smithsy. Um, and I know that Bona Drag was, uh, you know, sort of a compilation of unreleased, but this that was the first Morrissey solo el- album I heard. Okay. And there's songs like Piccadilly Polare uh, and Ouija Board, Ouija Board, which were, again, very, very Smiths. They've got that jingle jangle guitar in them. So I think he sort of carried on where the Smiths had left off. You know, if if not the guitar style, and certainly the sort of that that new wave uh, style of bass playing as well. But then we move on to the album Vauxhall and I, and it's got songs like Now My Heart Is Full and You're Heading More Down the Modern Morrissey Style. Yep. So you can kind of go on from late 90s and the style evolves. Yeah, for sure. So. I mean, when I first heard um, the single from from this record, which I think the first one I heard was um, was Irish Blood English Heart, and I thought this is a this is a hell of a hell of a song. It's a it's a, it's a different feel. It's far more rocky um, in terms of its sound. But we'll talk about that one later on. First of all, we're just going to listen to a little track called "America Is Not the World." They said, and 
of opportunity In a just and a truthful way But where the president is never black Female or gay And until that day You've got nothing to say Help me Uh, so that was America is Not the World, the first track on You Are the Quarry by Morrissey. Now, uh, Moz had moved out to Los Angeles towards the end of the 90s, I think, and although he obviously liked it there because he stuck around, um, this opening track certainly has plenty to say about his adopted home. So he's, he's almost kind of analysing America as, as being the land of the free, but he then, got, then goes on to say stuff like where the president is never black, female or gay, which now seems a little bit redundant considering, you know, Barack Obama got elected and stuff, but obviously this was written at a particular moment in time. He was identifying the traits of America then and the kind mm, of... I think they've sort of gone backwards into those traits again now, haven't they? Well, yeah, I mean, it, not to get too <laughs> political, but you, you, yeah. you're, you're completely right there. And I, I believe that this song once again fits because it's almost like they've tried to cancel out that mm. little bit of goodness. Yeah. Um, so this song is, is very apt in that way. He's got he's got that whole um, pleading lyric of, I've got nothing to offer you, just this heart deep and true, which you say you don't need, which is almost him pointing out that, you know, America, all they really want is money. And, uh, you know, they, they don't really want him there. They just want what he can do for them. And I think a lot of people feel that way about America. Uh, not not that America is a I bad place. I think it's place. not necessarily just true for America that I think that's true for the whole bloody world, isn't it? I think that's true. I think I think it, a lot of the time is a, it's a what can you do for me kind of thing yeah. attitude, and he's definitely expressing that here. I mean, there's a lot of little contradictions in this song where he goes back and forth on himself, and it's it's a really smart kind of song written from a point of view of you know obviously an Englishman that has moved there and likes it, but has a few things to say it's a really it's a really cool song as well because it's real simple it's just this kind of classy r&b beat with minimal backing which really allows you to kind of soak up what he's saying he, he goes on to say the line about the hamburger doesn't he and uh, you know america um the home of the hamburger you know where you can stick your hamburger um <laughs> which is obviously quite a striking statement to make uh but yeah, I think it's a hell of an opener. It's a, it's a way to start an album and say, this is what Morrissey is about. This is the kind of point of view you're going to have if you're going to listen to a Morrissey record. And that hasn't really changed in 20 years or whatever it was when he started his career. So obviously from the opening song, we got the classic Morrissey cynical point of view, but he doesn't let, he doesn't kind of restrict his targets to, to America. He, he goes on to talk about his home in Irish blood, English heart, where he kind of swaps the cynicism for what seems to be him longing for a bit of a brighter future. Now, it's possibly the most rocking Morrissey song ever to me. I love this tune. I love the way it starts with those cool kind of crisp sounding guitars. Um, it's almost got a punk rock sound when it uses like the octave chords and the squealing guitar effects. We get lines like, I've been dreaming of a time when to be English is not to be baneful, to be standing by the flag, not feeling shameful, racist or partial. I mean... As an obvious statement, I'm sure on the surface, 
it's a statement a lot of people can relate to. You know, I don't want to be here for these reasons. I don't want to be in this country for these reasons. I want to be, I want to, I want to be able to be proud of my flag for the right reasons. You know, and that's just kind of the surface that I found. But after looking on various forums, I found a few other meanings. But before I discuss these, I want to ask you what you take from this song, Sam. Okay, so I think the title says a little bit about the song. Um, obviously drawing influence from both uh, Morris's Irish and English heritage. I think it's a very in-your-face political song. I think there's messages of the English being sick to death of Labour and Tories, um, which is still relatable now again. It's one yep. of those ones that doesn't date. Um, I think he's trying to put across that we are perhaps losing our identity as a nation at one point or another. Um, I think that perhaps it's okay to be patriotic as long as you stand by the flag for the right on reasons. Uh, I suppose you could say it's like the more educated reasons. Yeah. It's a very English song. Uh, and I suppose it's one of those ones that might not mean a lot to someone who hasn't spent their whole life here. I don't know. I think so, and I think that I think this is another instance of um of Morrissey and how easily he can be misunderstood because he makes all these inflammatory statements and people say, "Oh, isn't he making a fool of himself?" But then you get statements like this, like those lyrics that I just read, which are incredibly powerful. That as simple as they are, they really say something about people wanting to do things for the right reasons as opposed to just kind of narrow-minded and ignorant reasons. So not to go not to go too much on a political soapbox because that's not what this podcast is about, but obviously Morrissey's got a lot to say on this one. I've been dreaming of a time when to be English is not Digging on some forums, I found some really cool, interesting takes on this. So um, I looked on songmeanings.com, which is, you know, it's, it's a great place to look for these kind of things. And multiple users on there associate this song with Morrissey's Irish heritage and how he still embraces his roots despite being born in England. So the references to, like, spitting on Oliver Cromwell, they seem to be based around Cromwell attempting to get rid of Irish natives back in the day. Mm. So... This song can be seen as both seen as both like a call to the future, like we mentioned, like and looks at negative events and how they've inflicted themselves upon his heritage. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this song, and, and it's a great song that can be taken on many levels. Right, so to my ears, and again, help me out here, Sam. I'm I'm purely basing this on on one of the few Morrissey solo tunes I've heard. Um this is a far more punchy and modern sounding album than he'd attempted before. And I think this comes down to the fact that, you know, I mentioned seven year break from music will always give you a chance to look around at the musical landscape and, and take in the different sounds and, and bring them into your own band. I think it's got a lot to do with the producer of the album as well, um, by the name of Jerry Finn. Have you heard that name before, Sam? I have. 
Yeah, so uh, Jerry Jerry Finn, you know, he's he's quite famous in the kind of circles we would have listened to music in when we were younger. He produced really famous work by Blink-182 and Green Day at their peak, as well as many other popular bands of the late 90s. Now, it's not like Morrissey goes pop punk or anything here, but the production's like really chunky and it's got loads of like low end and, and crashing guitars and it's not quite as jangle poppy as the earlier stuff that you mentioned earlier on. Like, you know, you mentioned the earlier albums had a bit more of a Smith's feel. Mm. I feel like you can hear that here a little bit. I don't know if you agree with me. I feel like you can hear that, but, you know, it's not quite as much. What what I do admire about this approach is that, you know, working with a producer who, who'd worked with so many American bands, it would have been so tempting for him to go, right, okay, American bands, American sounds. How can we make this sound more American to appeal to that audience? But he didn't do that at all, did he? He he made a record that I think is still innately British, and it still sounds like something that would have come out of Britain in, in the mid-90s or something like that, despite its chunkier sound. It really has, has, has a British appeal to it. And I think you hear this on tracks like Come Back to Camden, which, you know, it's a bit of a character study of somebody, you know, the main character wants, wants someone to return back to him. But at the same time, they're reminding that person um, of all of the, uh, you know, all of the pleasures and not so pleasant things about that particular area of London. Yeah, let's take a listen to Come Back to Camden. The tile yard Up a discoloured dark brown staircase Here you'll find despair and I Calling to you with what's left of my heart My heart forevermore With the taste of the Thames Sullenly on a chair on the pavement Here you'll find my thoughts and I And here is the very last plea from my home Right, so that's a great track. It's a slower number, but it's no less potent than anything else he's ever written. Uh, Now, I don't know much about your relationship with Morrissey's music. Uh, Where did you first find his music and when did you get into him, Sam? So I first got into Morrissey through, like with a lot of of these more 80s orientated things, through my uncle. Uh, he gave me a tape of, I'm sure it was Bone of Drag, I'm going to say Bone of Drag. Um, and do you know what made me really, really want to sort of get into Morrissey? It was the fact that my mother couldn't stand it. She <laughs> still think... to this day can't stand him. Every time oh. we post anything on Instagram, she's right there. I think uh, it's it's one of those things that when you're a kid, you sort of want to rebel, don't you? And you see, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, right, my mum really doesn't like this guy, so what can I do? I'm going to really love this guy. And that's exactly so what I, I did. I actually think it's more 
credit to your mum than your uncle then <laughs> yeah. yeah i suppose so yeah yeah awesome man well i mean obviously we 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 all get into music through like our, our family and whatnot and and you mentioned your uncle there and i just want to mention how great are uncles are getting you into stuff i mean my uncle one year actually couldn't afford to get me a christmas present so what did he do he he copied me and taped me every single michael jackson record and i, I mean you know as far as as far as things go, it's it's not something that's going to cost a lot of money. But that was the best present for me that year because someone yeah. had given me all this music, you know, to listen to. And um, yeah, it's it's just those little things that go a long way, I think, in getting you into you pointing you in the right direction. And uh, it's always good when when kind of family members chuck your music, isn't it? Because yeah, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of songs on this record that take me right back to the Smiths, and I know I said not a lot of it sounds like the Smiths, but there are still elements there, both lyrically and musically. Um, firstly, the song Let Me Kiss You. It's just this fantastically miserable song, and I know you sent me a voicemail earlier last <laughs> week um, um, with your own rendition of that song, um, which, you know, I might release at some point. I might not, um, but but it, it was fantastic. But yeah, this this song is is wonderful. The, the lyrics... The lyrics are just, like, devastating in a way that only Morrissey can do it. I think one of the, the lyrics goes, close your eyes and think of somebody you physically admire and let me kiss you. And it's later followed by the ending lyric, but then you open your eyes and you see somebody that you physically despise, but my heart is open to you. It, it's it's all, you know, as if he's saying, I know I'm not much, but there's something here to love. It's just this, it's so beautifully tragic. And I think that, that's the best way to describe Morrissey's lyrical approach, really. I don't know what you think about this track, because obviously you uh, you sent me a lovely version of it in, in the week. I, I, do, I do love the track. And you mentioned earlier on about the slower songs, uh, like Come Back to Camden as well. I think they are the stronger songs on the album. And I think it's those kind of songs that really draw me into Morrissey more than the upbeat ones i suppose it's like you mentioned with this descendants uh, earlier on with the kind of twofold um of 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 kind of certain bands and morrissey certainly has those upbeat songs you know the smiths had it this charming man stuff like that it's a real earworm and you wouldn't have to think about the lyrics without you know wanting to have a bit of a dance but it's songs like let me kiss you and, and come back to camden that we mentioned uh, that just uh, kind of you have to focus on that lyric because there's there's not that much going on, and, and the the vocal and hook and the melodies are really strong, but it's just the way that he goes about penning those lyrics. And I know you've mentioned in the past you're not particularly a lyric person, but for Morrissey, I think that's got to be an exception, right, man? Mm. Yeah, certainly. I think another kind of equally deep and slow song is a song called "I Have Forgiven Jesus," which, as well as a slightly blasphemous title. Um, it really has so many different takes from so many people on the internet. It's such, it's a wonderful song and it flows so well. Yeah, I'm just going to play a bit of the verse and the chorus so that, so that we can kind of get into it and then um, I'll read them back to you. I was a good kid Through hail and snow I'd go Just to moon you I carry my heart in my Understand? Do you understand? But Jesus hurt me when he deserted me. But I have forgiven Jesus for all of the 
I was a good kid. Through hail and snow, I'd go just to moon you. I carried my heart in my hand. Do you understand? Do you understand? But Jesus hurt me when he deserted me. But I have forgiven you, Jesus, for all of the love you placed in me when there's no one I can turn to with this love. Um, so an interesting set of lyrics there, and they continue to be interesting throughout the, uh, the, the song. What do you take from this one, Sam? I mean, this song is fantastic. I think it's one of the best songs on the record. Um, I think Morrissey has and always will come across as a bit of a tortured soul. Um, and I guess through this song, he's explaining a little bit about why that might be. I think perhaps he had, like he has the ability ability to be, you know, inverted commas normal, and has all the feelings most of us do, but doesn't quite know how to use them. Um, I think it's a great song. <laughs> no, I keep I'm going to keep saying that, but I, I love this one, and it's. Uh, it's like I say, he's got all the love in the world to give. He's got all the desire he wants to fit in to everyday society, but he doesn't know how. And so he's angry at Jesus for giving him this power and not knowing how to use it. Yeah, I I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, however... There's so many different explanations for this one online, and I feel like I should kind of address them because there's some more obvious ones that some people kind of think, oh, well, it must be this. And I was sat in the car the other day listening to this song with Beth, and for some reason she was like, is Morrissey gay? And I was like, I don't think he's ever really said. I'm I'm not sure. Maybe that's just me, but I don't remember him saying. Um... And and I was like, why do you ask? And she was like, well, in this song, he kind of sounds like he's addressing that. And I was like, well, what makes you say that? And she's kind of saying, you know, about this, all of the love, you know, that I have kind of line, but I've got no one to give it to. And I was like, well, why would that mean that he was gay? <laughs> so we got into this whole kind of argument about, well, not argument, but a bit of a conversation about that kind of thing. It went around in circles. However, I did go online and a lot of people did seem to think that this was relating to, you know, his supposedly, supposed closet homosexuality. And then there was a lot of Morrissey fans saying, well, no, no, that's, you just jump into conclusions. But what I took from it was exactly what you said. I, I figure, you know, with lines like, I've forgiven you, Jesus, for all the love you placed in me when there's no one I can turn to with this love, it's almost as if he's saying, I've got all this love and all this desire, but I've got nobody I relate to enough to be able to, to give, yeah. them, give them this love and desire. Um, I mean... There's no female Morrissey out there. Yeah. <laughs> or male Morrissey. Or male... Either yeah, way. Yeah, either way. Either way. But, I mean, the ending lines really do it for me because it's like... He says, why do you stick me in such self-deprecating bones and skins? Do you hate me? And then repeats, do you hate me? Um, yeah. They're really painful lines, but they're like really painfully subtle, you know, because they're like, they're almost obvious, aren't they? They're almost exactly what he's thinking. There's nothing kind of hidden there on those lines. He is wondering, you know, why do you make me this, this kind of person that's, you know, has all of this kind of all these feelings inside that I just can't communicate with anyone else because no one feels the same way. Um and yeah, I, I think I think um I suppose a, a pretty perfect explanation would be uh I'm sure I read one time uh, one interview that he's actually asexual. And I guess that would explain the whole song. 
I um I think something else about this album that a lot of casual Morrissey fans might not know that you know he's got a secret weapon and it's a couple of chaps named Baz Bora and Alan White and they're Morrissey's long-term guitarists and collaborators and they came on board for 1991's Kill Uncle and 1994's Vauxhall and I which you mentioned earlier on and they've always been an integral part of Morrissey's writing team and they've co-written a hell of a lot of tracks including a lot of the ones on this record now I think that in terms of a musical backbone they seem to have really peaked here because they've provided like a much crunchier, much spikier sound for, for Morrissey's kind of somber poetry. What do you make of the, the musical elements of this record? I'm not going to lie to you. When I first bought the album, I I didn't like it. Okay. Um, I didn't like the style. Um, bearing in mind that was back in 2004. Um, and, you know, I was only 18. <laughs> so. Yeah. My musical taste hasn't hadn't quite set in yet. Um, it took me a few listens to really begin to enjoy it. Um, I think it was it felt sort of dated, I suppose, for two thousand and four, um, and you know that kind of era of you know what what else we were getting on you know Kerrang TV at that point. You, you were getting things like Slipknot uh, from one end of the spectrum, and then you were getting things like Blink One Eight Two on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and you've got this old guy, Morrissey, who's on Kerrang! TV with his more of a classic rock feel, I suppose you, you could say. But I think that it kind of turned into his style. And I think it was a style that you would now definitely strongly associate with Morrissey, um, you know, especially with the everything that came after You Are The Quarry sort of stuck to this kind of style. Yeah, I, I think after listening to a lot of uh, the, the stuff, a lot of his records that he released afterwards, they do kind of fall in with that crunchier, you mm. know, rocky sound as opposed to the more cleaner elements of, of his past releases. So I, I totally agree there. So I, I mentioned earlier on the kind of crunchier, spikier elements of the music here, which I think Morrissey kind of more than compliments with, with his angry lyrics. And there's a track on here that had me a little bit confused, and it's called How Could Anybody Possibly Know How I Feel? And it's so angry and bile-filled that you just start to question what it's actually about. Um, the song's, it, it, you know, it's 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 classically british indie sounding really with this wonderfully pulsing bass line but again it's lyrics like i've had my face dragged through 15 miles of shit and lyrical juxtapositions they go like they said they respect me which means their judgment is crazy and you get quite a, a few of those back and forth throughout the song and it's almost so upfront you kind of think there must be something beneath the surface here this can't be all this song's about let's take a listen and get a closer look at it they said they respect me which means their judgment is crazy I've had my face dragged in 15 miles of shit And I do not, and I do not And I do not like it So how can anybody say They know how I feel When they are they And only I am I So 
I think the kind of anger it keeps going on the world is full of crashing bars, which is another song that you uh, you sent me a, a voicemail version of in the week, um, which fully embraces his kind of Oscar Wilde style with that title. I think it's another track where he takes aim at cer- like a certain section of people, um, but it almost seems like he's scared that he's becoming one of them, which is really interesting. And I mean, he uses so many eyes, you know. I am, I do, whatever in on this record, that you, you've, you've kind of got to watch yourself because I'm pretty sure that not all of the eyes are actually Morrissey. I think that he tells a lot of stories on this record and you've got to be careful that you don't think, oh, this is the way he feels or this is the way Morrissey feels about things because I think throughout his career, he's learned how to kind of write the kind of songs that sound an awful lot like he's putting his point of, point of view across, but it's not always him. And I think that's that's kind of one of the things that keeps Morrissey's mystique and mystery tightly locked away, really. Um, I want to ask you, basically, you only really get to ask someone this once. Where do you think Morrissey's lyrics lie in terms of how much they're based in reality and how much they're based in kind of like deadpan? Um, personally, I, I think it's all based on real life. I think, you know... I, I, I don't know if you've listened to any of his, uh, you know, rare interviews, and they are rare, uh, but that's just exactly the way he is. And I think maybe he has the comedic and deadpan outlook on life. Um, I don't think Stephen Morrissey, the man, was meant for this world. I know it's a weird, slightly awful thing to say, but perhaps he was meant to be born off on a faraway world. Uh, you know, I don't know whether you understand the Star Trek reference, but perhaps Vulcan. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe. I feel like he would fit in there in a world of logic. Uh, yeah. Because there's not much logic in in this world, is there? I think the thing with him is he really is like sort of a Marmite guy. And I think uh, I have to admit some of his views I'm not totally on board with. But his music, I am 100% behind. Yeah. I think Morrissey's uh, kind of allure or the attraction to Morrissey is exactly what you just said. You know, he the fact that he seems like the kind of guy who shouldn't really exist. You know, he seems like the kind of guy that has attitudes that don't fit in. Um, and then, you know, some of them are slightly controversial and some of them are slightly inflammatory. But when you get to the heart of the man... Um, you see the, like you mentioned, very rare, but the the interviews that you might be able to find on YouTube. He's actually quite a sweetheart. He's actually, he's got a lot of views that kind of endear you to him. And it, um, he, he's not that guy that you read about in the papers. You know, you read about him in the papers and it's just words that kind of, you know, sometimes, I'm, I'm not defending everything he says, but sometimes are taken out of context. So do you think I, he's, I, it can be quite uncomfortable when he's in front of a camera? I think so, and I think just like a lot, you know, just like when you're a teenager or whatever and you're uncomfortable, sometimes you say things that are a bit stupid and a bit, you know, to appear to have like a bravado or something maybe, and I don't know if that's what is going on with Morrissey, um, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not defending anything he's ever said, but it's just, uh, he's a hard man to figure out, but he, he's, <laughs> I think that's part of the reason that everybody that loves him, loves him, because... If he was just some dude, uh, it, it wouldn't be half as interesting. His lyrics no, wouldn't be half as not. interesting, and I, I think he's one of the, if you know, he's one of he's one of the kind of musical legends of our country for a reason. Yeah. Um, I think it's his his singing style as well. Um, it's 
I think it's the singing style that's also quite Marmite for some people. Um, but he sort of doesn't uh, conform to how music should sound when he is singing. He kind of wants to fit his lyrics in no matter what the you know the backing track sounds like. So yep. he'll always find a way to squeeze you know 10 words into somewhere where maybe there should just be two or three. Or sometimes he will just put two or three words into a, a long piece of music where there should only be where there should be like ten words. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it feels like he'd get along pretty well with Billy Bragg. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, in terms of his singing style, um, here's a big compliment for Morrissey. Um, Beth um, has a thing where she doesn't like a certain style of singing because she calls it potato potato mouth or potato voice and it's the whole ah, thing and it's not morrissey's voice but it's when people do that yeah and it's almost like their voice turns over i can't explain it but some people just sing a certain way and then they reach this potato voice and and she's out of the door she hates it but morrissey she loves so there we go you know he's the one guy that has the potato voice that she can stand so so good job good job um yeah, anyway, back to this record. Um, as 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 far as, you know, comebacks go, this is a comeback special. I suppose it would be a good idea to gauge whether this was successful as a comeback or not. Well, it failed to break the US top 10, coming in at number 11, but the UK saw success. He came in at number 2 in the UK album charts. Um, Pitchfork gave it a generous 8.9, calling You Are The Quarry... Um, it, saying it simply stands as the most entertaining and lushly melodic work of Morrissey's solo career, as well as NME stating it's a solid, occasionally spectacular comeback record. So there we go, charts and media recognition. But, you know, who cares about those guys? This is our show. And if it comes down to my opinion, it, it's a massive yes from me. It's an album that, you know, it takes the traits of its creator and, and bands he, he's been in previously and it embraces all these new sounds and, and chunky production and it's still got that great lyrical style of Morrissey. And yeah, I just think it's a formula that just proves to be really formidable. I just, I, th I think that in terms of maintaining his career, this was a really important record because you don't just take that amount of time away from music, make a crap record and continue to make music. It just doesn't happen. And the fact that this record was a smash for him, the fact that it was a great sounding record, allowed him to go on and make all the records he's made up until this date. So, You Are The Quarry is a thumbs up from me. Thank you very much, dude. Okay, so now it's down to what I consider to be the best part of the show. This is the part of the show where we will each pick an album for next week and we're going to surprise the hell out of each other with it. So I'm going to tell you what I picked for you straight away. Um, for you, for next week's show, you're going to be listening to Ghost Tiger's Rise by Tiger Army. Oh, fantastic. That is a record that I'm, I'm I'm a little bit familiar with, but I haven't listened to it for a long time. Um, you know, it, it's one that I really like, so thank you very much, dude. And for yourself, I have picked a record from a little bit further back. It is My Aim is True by Elvis Costello. Excellent. Currently in my head, the second best Elvis, but hopefully things will be changed by the end of this week. I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of Elvis <laughs> fans out there. That's probably going to get us uh, bad ratings. Anyway, folks, um, that's what we've picked for each other. So please tune in next week to hear us talk about those. In the meantime, you can check us out at Twitter. So that's twitter.com slash club, And you can find us on all good podcast platforms. So 
This has been the Mystery Record Club, and we'll see you next time.